You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. And now, Father, as, uh, as, I, as we get ready to dive into your word, um, I just want to begin just by coming to you and just saying we want to bless you. God, you have given us so much, more than we can ever comprehend, regardless of where each of us is on the journey. Whether, whether we're here today just checking you out and trying to figure you out um, and not sure of you, or whether we're here today and been walking with you for longer than 15 minutes, uh, regardless of where we're at in that journey, we just want to collectively come together as a church family and just recognize that you have blessed us so greatly. Give us the gift of life, gift of food and friends and community, the gift of your word, the gift of the message of the gospel, the gift of your son at the cross. And the list can just go on and on and on. I just pray, Lord God, that you would cause our time in your word here to be rich. I pray, Lord, that you um, would drill deep within the cave of our souls and help us to confront maybe uh, fears and sin roots um, there. Um, But help us to find a hiding place in that cave of our soul with you. Pray, God, that you would uh, continue to just reveal to each of us that you are our rock and our redeemer. You are the horn of our salvation. You are mighty. You are powerful. You are faithful. You are merciful. And you are graceful. You are truthful. So Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us um, as we look at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane praying. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Luke says this, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them, about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So in this passage that I just read that we're going to study here for the next few moments, Luke is recording for us the hardest season of prayer In Jesus' life, all throughout Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus pray. Oftentimes, if you do a cursory study and reading of Luke's gospel, and any of the other gospels for that matter, you'll see Jesus praying. We've seen him teach on prayer. We've seen some of the places that he went to pray. We've seen the Father's response oftentimes to his prayers as Jesus prays for some to be healed and set free. We see Father's response to him in prayer. We also see his commitment to prayer all throughout the Gospel of Luke. But in these verses that we're looking at, what we see is Jesus persevering in prayer. Persevering through the hardest season of prayer that he lived through. Prayer can be hard. We've had that discussion this morning already. But what I believe about this passage as I look is I believe that what the Spirit of God wants to do for us and in us is basically extend an invitation to us to meet with God in 
prayer through any and every season of our life, through the hardest seasons and through the easiest seasons. That as we examine Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we see him praying during this agonizing season of his life, some would call it the Garden of Agony. Some would refer to it as the long, dark night of the soul. However you refer to this point in Jesus' ministry and life, rest assured it was the most difficult time, the hardest time of prayer for Him. And I think what the Holy Spirit wants to do is invite us into that and, inv and invite us into a life of prayer. And the question for you and I is a simple question. It's, it's, the, it's the question that I only ever pose every week. The question for us is how will you respond to that? How will you receive that? How are you going to act on that when you walk out of here? Put some notes on your tables, hoping that just being able to keep track of some of the points as we go would be helpful to you from a auditory to visual to um, just participating in it a little bit, and hopefully that gives you something you can take home with you and look at. Um, the first thing I want to look at um, is point number one. Um, as I've looked at the text, kind of broke it down. Uh, thing number one, we're going to take a look at the practice and the instruction of prayer. <laughs> I just want us to examine that a little bit. The practice and instruction of prayer. And we see Jesus' practice of prayer and his instructions to pray in the first couple of verses of our text. Luke tells us that Jesus came out. You could underline that if you wanted to or circle it. Jesus came out and went, as was his custom. You might circle that word custom. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. You might underline that or circle that if you're into this. The disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, you might underline place. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. You might underline that whole phrase. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. When it comes to studying scripture, it, words are important. Language is important. And so when we read the Bible, we're not just reading an ancient document or an old book, although that's part of it. We're coming to that book, the Bible, and we're, we're wanting to see, is this really God's Word speaking to us? And if we just come to the Bible and just kind of give it a cursory reading and go, I didn't really feel much, that's kind of like eating pizza and going, oh, oh the pizza didn't really taste as good to me as it did last time, right? With God's Word, we don't want to approach it like pizza. We want to approach God's Word like God's Word. So we want to spend some time thinking about those words. That's why I say underline, maybe circle some of those phrases. For Jesus, prayer was a regular part of His life. It was a regular practice for Him. A regular rhythm that He engaged in. A regular rhythm that He often gave very specific instructions for wasn't just that he regularly practiced prayer, but he also gave regular instruction to his disciples, and they followed him, not only in his model and his example, but also in his words and in his teaching, how he taught them and instructed them to pray. It was his custom, the way Luke puts it. It's a custom, a regular rhythm. Think about the regular rhythms of your life for a second. The regular rhythms of your life. Get up at a certain time. You take showers at a certain time. Hopefully every day. Some of you take showers more than once a day. Which is probably a good idea for some of us. A regular rhythm to life. Eat breakfast at this time. Maybe don't eat breakfast. That's a rhythm. Eat lunch at a certain time. Some of you got to drop off kids at school, pick up kids from school. Some of you have jobs you have to work and you have to be there at a certain time. Take a lunch break, take your normal break, leave. These are rhythms of our life. You brush your teeth, at least I hope you brush your teeth. You brush your teeth. You know how many people I hear complain and whine about religion? Oh, I hate religion. Well, quit brushing your teeth then. <laughs> quit brushing your teeth then if you really hate religion. Because all religion is, 
at least in the sense that you're talking about it, is a mind-numbing behavior that you do that means nothing to you. And uh, just quit brushing your teeth then. And you might say, well, brushing my teeth means something to me. Okay, well, what does it mean? See, it's good to chop that up a little bit. What does prayer really mean for you? Prayer, I think, is much more important than brushing our teeth. But Jesus practiced prayer as was his custom. It was a regular practice, a regular rhythm. And that rhythm included coming out from the busyness or getting away from the busyness of life. Oftentimes what interrupts the rhythm of prayer for us is the hectic pace that we have given ourselves to living to and the excuses we make for not being able to stop the hectic pace that we have gotten ourselves into. We all do this. I don't have time to change my schedule. I don't have time to spend time with Jesus that way. I, do you know everything that's going on in my life? I, if there was anybody that I think was probably the busiest, probably Jesus. It's just my thought. It's just my thought. And it may or may not be true, but I think he was busier than you or I. And yet he still made time to follow a rhythm and a custom where he withdrew away from the hustle and the bustle, away from the craziness, away from the screaming speed that we um, run through life at. I mean, you think about how frustrated you get when you're in the McDonald's drive-in and there's five cars in front of you and you're really upset because you want your food faster and heaven flipping forbid if they get your order wrong, right? Heaven forbid if they get your order wrong. <laughs> I'm ignoring her because I've now lost my train of thought completely. Not good. To, I like talk back from the audience just at the right times, you know, where it's where it's more like, "Amen, brother, preach that." Like that kind of uh, talk back is good, but. I'm, I'm, I've lost it, and I have no idea where I was. Um, your rhythm, your rhythm gets interrupted when your rhythm gets interrupted. So you just experienced what I was preaching. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Every day, Jesus routinely went to a specific place, right? He routinely went to a specific place to pray. This was his custom as he went. And he gave specific instruction to his disciples. They not only heard him talk about prayer, but they saw him praying and he engaged them in the activity of praying as well. This is the place or the practice and the instruction of prayer that we see here. And I think the reason that Jesus gives this bit of uh, instruction to them, pray that you will not be, you will not give in the temptation. Pray that you will not get controlled by temptation. Pray that you will not give in to temptation. I just want you to think of the broad scope and kind of the picture of what's taking place here. Jesus just spent a last meal at the table with his disciples and has explained to them that one dude named Judas is going to uh, betray uh, Jesus and give him up for death, right? You got that happening. Um, you got Jesus washing all the disciples' feet as well. Wash the feet of his betrayer. Next time you get ticked because someone betrayed you, get a towel, get yourself a bucket of water, go wash that person's feet. And then you'll be like Jesus. Have fun with that, because that is a, a soul-crushing um, activity to engage in. Right? But these are things that have happened leading up to this. I don't, I don't think Jesus, Jesus was perfect, right? Um, yet, I think his prayerful presence, his connection to his Father in heaven, is what enabled him not to fall into the temptation of killing Judas in that moment, right? I mean, my temptation when someone betrays me, said it many times, just go to my gun cabinet and get out my 
AK, even though I don't have an AK. Um, that's my temptation. I don't know what your temptation is when it comes to somebody who betrays you. Jesus modeled it and taught this at the same time. Washes the betrayer's feet. So that's something that happened before Jesus said, go pray, go pray, that you don't get overrun or consumed with or controlled by temptation, that you don't fall into it. It's a picture of falling down. This is where we get our... Our language that, man, I fell down last week. I fell back into that old thing, right? Um, and so Jesus says, man, pray. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. Think of this other context, not just Judas that uh, Jesus um, warned. Like, he's going he's gonna to betray us. Dude's gone. <coughs> what do his disciples do? Do you remember? His disciples start arguing. Oh, who, who, who's going to betray us? Because he hasn't named Judas, if you remember that in the text. Uh-uh. Everybody starts arguing. Man, man, it's, gonna be, it's not going to be me that fails. There's no way. Like, I've got this down. I've been following Jesus for three years. I mean, you, you came later, right? So it could be you. They start bickering back and forth. Man, who could it be? There's some temptation there. Don't we do that? Stack up our little, our little check marks. Oh, man, I've been part of the church for this long. Yeah, but I do this. Yeah, but I did that. Yeah, well, I did this. I mean, it just it gets so easy for us to do. Can you believe what that lady said or what that guy did? It's another way we do it. I would never do that. We, and if we don't say it, we think it, right? We think there's no way that I could ever be Judas. So Jesus has walked through that. And then towards the end of the meal, he looks at Peter and he's like, Hey, Peter, this is what we preached last week, if you remember. Hey, Peter, uh, you better watch out. Satan came to own you. He demanded to have you. He wants to call you his. He's going to own you like a slave. He, he wants you to be his slave. He wants to be your slave master. He wants to force you to do things that you were not created to do in the way that you were created to do them. I'm going to toss you up and sift you like wheat. Because <laughs> I just love to say wheat with the H backwards instead of wheat. All right? So, yeah, it is wheat. So, and then he preaches to them, right? Remember this from last week. Preaches to them. Hey, man, go, go sell your cloak and buy a sword. And then they come up and they're like, look, look, Jesus, we got two swords, not just one. We didn't just go get a Beretta handgun. We got a Smith & Wesson too. And he's like, you missed the flipping point. The point was not go buy a gun. The point was get yourself ready for the hardship that's coming. Right? And he's like, it's enough. And again, from last week, it's not that two guns or two swords is enough. It's that Jesus had enough. He's frustrated. He is disappointed. You put yourself in Jesus' shoes just for a minute, just to kind of turn the corner on this. How, how, how disappointed do you think Jesus is after facing these things? I mean, how, how disappointed do you get when somebody betrays you? How disappointed do you get when you constantly repeat yourself over and over and over and over again, and they don't get it? And you got kids? Or a spouse? <laughs> okay. My wife has a spouse. He's standing in front of you and has a hard time hearing things. So how many of you have ever run that disappointment and frustration of having to repeat yourself over and over? Here's where Jesus is at. Now think of the other thing that's about to come down the road. Jesus knows that Peter is going to deny him three times and he knows that all of his friends are going to bail when he gets lifted up on that cross, he knows all of his friends are going to bail and take off and desert him. Where would you be? Where would your soul be? Where would your heart be if you faced all those things together? I just faced one of those things. I want to go crawl in a hole. Right? I just faced one of those things. I want to go crawl in a hole. It would take me years to bounce back from just one of those things. Right? That's how weak I am. Jesus, Jesus knows our suffering and walks this out in a way that blows my mind. How does he do that? Well, I think 
He's connected to the Father in prayer continuously. He, he withdrew from the busyness of life and stayed connected so that the Father could speak love to him. Man, what, what needs to happen in your life? Just question under this first point. What needs to happen in your life to better cultivate, to better cultivate a regular rhythm of practice of prayer for you? What needs to happen in your life? What needs to slow down? What do you need to cut out of your schedule? What do you ruthlessly need to get on top of so that you are actually walking in prayerful communion with your Father in heaven so that you can hear from Him daily? So that you can face the, the hardship of life? We, we, we were not meant to walk through this life disconnected from our Father. And one of the primary ways that we stay connected to Him is through prayer. So what needs to happen in your life so that you can walk in communion with, with your Father in Heaven through prayer? What needs to happen in your life where that becomes cultivated? Where, where, it's, a, where it's a custom where it's part of your daily rhythm. In what ways do you need to hear Jesus' instruction to you to pray against temptation? What are you tempted to that often takes you away from communion with your Father in prayer? Again, tempted towards busyness, tempted to put up, pull up the bootstraps and just do it on your own, just to kind of gut it out. When Jesus tells his disciples to pray against temptation, it would have been great if they would have listened. But we know the disciples and we know the end of the passage because we read it, and we'll get there later. They epically failed this one, didn't they? Didn't they epically fail on this one? Man, how easy is it for us to stand on the outside of the text, though, and be like, yeah, they epically failed. <laughs> and forget that, isn't this what we do? Right? Right? It comes back to what I originally said in the beginning. That I think that what the Holy Spirit wants to do in this text is give us an invitation to meet with Him regularly in prayer. Practice that regularly. Listen, your GCs should be full of prayer. And it shouldn't just be like the one-off. Hey, let's just pray like we're praying over dinner. Jesus, thank you for the food. Please bless it and nurse to our bodies. Amen. Like, not just kind of the one-off prayers, but deep soul prayers. Praying for one another's real needs, right? This is what our gospel community should be full of. What about your marriages? Your marriages and your families, they should be full of prayer. Again, not just the one of, hey, please help Charity go to bed tonight. But, hey, let me just pray for Charity right now and what's happening deep down inside of her heart in terms of loneliness or self-image or fear. Like we, we need to be praying for real as a family and as a church family. This is an invitation to us to come and to meet with God in prayer. A second thing I want to look at is the place and the posture for prayer. The place and the posture for prayer. In verse 41, we see the place of Jesus' prayer. <clears throat> and then we see his posture during prayer. And what Luke tells us is that Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw. It's not very far. Chuck a stone. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed. So Jesus regularly withdrew from the presence of people. Listen, Jesus regularly withdrew from the presence of people so that he could get himself into the place and posture of prayer so that he could get himself into the presence of his Father in heaven. Like that statement alone should be something that blows your brain up for the rest of the week. Not because I think that my words are that good, but I believe that that is the truth of this text and it's a big meaning that really should drive home into our hearts. We need, we need to be thinking about this. What does it look like for you to get out of the presence of people so that you can get yourself into a place and posture? Place and posture. A certain place you go to and a certain posture of your heart so that you can then get into the presence of your Father. Because you and I will not continue to follow Him if we do not get into His presence. You won't. The reason that you and I fall down, the reason that you and I give in to temptation, 
And really the temptation is simply this. The big broad overview, the big temptation is to trust anything other than our Father in heaven to be the one who is enough for us. That's the big temptation. Every idol that you and I have growing deep within our hearts is really this selfish motivation and idolatry that is warring against God who wants to be the only focus of our lives. So the temptation is to trust in anything other than God, right? My paycheck, how much I can perform and get done, my kids, my wife, all those, the way my, yards, my, way my yard looks, the way my home looks, all those things can become good things. They're good things in and of themselves, right? For some of us, it's sex. It's sex. Are we looking to that to fill us up? And that's getting in the way of our prayer life, whether married or unmarried. That happens. We can look to all sorts of things to be for us what only God can be. And instead of going to the place of prayer that we should be going to, we go to a place of idolatry. Turn good things into distorted things. Instead of living in a way that the reformers would say that embodies this concept that the chief end of man is to glorify God and God alone. The place and the posture. What does that posture look like? Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and then he knelt down and prayed. He regularly withdrew from the presence of people so that he could get himself into the place and the posture of prayer so that he could be in the presence of his Father. This should be like a uh, a prayerful presence for you. <clears throat> I can always tell. This is just me. Um, and I can see it in my kids now. Um, but I can always see in church people. I mean, you guys know my job is a pastor, right? So it's okay for me to talk about church people. And when I say I talk about church people, I'm talking about you guys. <laughs> How about that? The fun part in that whole thing is I know that all you guys talk about me, and it's okay. You can. Like, you know what? That sermon sucked today. I fell asleep. Yeah. Go listen to it online. Right? And there's some of you who are like, you know what, that message wasn't too bad. Joe talked for too long, or sometimes he was too short. So I know you guys talk about me. So I get this op option and opportunity to talk about you right in front of you, um, which I'd love. <laughs> I love it. I also get to talk about you behind your backs, but that's a completely different sermon. So <clears throat> <laughs> you guys are still awake. I'm digging that. Somebody say amen, preacher. Preach that. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. That's helping me out. All right. Uh, so, so let me just talk to you about you a little bit. I can tell. I can tell when somebody hasn't been in the presence of God. The text messages are 50,000 feet long, and they come rapidly, right? And they're repetitive, and there's no listening to what's being said back. Uh, it can be text messages, or it can be emails, or it can just be in a conversation over the phone. Like, you're just... You are stuck inside your head. Your wheels are spinning. The anxiety, the depression, whatever it may be, is taken over. And you are so self-focused that you can't get off it because you forgot about God. And you haven't been connecting with Him in prayer. And He's not, he's not all for you. It's you. It's everybody else. And it's, uh, and it's, uh, so stop for a second. Just, whew, right? Withdraw. Every one of us in this room. I'm not pointing my finger at one person in particular. Every one of us in this room has done this. And if a few of you haven't gotten a phone call from me that was like that, you just let me know. I'd be happy to call you. Because I know that Eric and Brandon, and I know my wife, have gotten those conversations where they're like, Stop! Or I'll bury you alive in a box. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> New word, it, IT. <laughs> <laughs> there's a place for prayer and there's a posture of prayer that you and I have got to get ourselves into if anyone knew what it was like to carry a heavy load listen to this if anyone knew what it was like to carry a heavy load 
All of us in this room feel like we know what that's like, right? If anyone knew what it was really like, Jesus knew what it was like to carry a heavy load. And I'm not just saying that to shame us, to guilt us or anything. I'm saying that so that you and I know we have a Savior. We have a God. We have a Messiah who went to the cross for us, who faced every bit of suffering that you and I will face. That's not to shame, guilt, or blame. That's to encourage. That should bring some sort of feeling deep within your soul where you can go, I am not alone, and my Savior faced it before I did. Right? That's why I say this. If anyone knew what it was like to carry a heavy load, Jesus knew what it was like. He knew the heavy load of serving people. He knew the heavy load of constantly leading. He knew the heavy load of, of a busy schedule. He knew, he knew the heavy load of, of just carrying those loads. How about that? Just the heavy load of carrying those loads in the presence of a bunch of people who didn't listen very well. Jesus knew what it was to carry a heavy load. He knew what it was like to then move away from that heavy load, out of the craziness, withdrawing into a place and posture of prayer where he could then connect with the Father in heaven, out of the presence of people and into the presence of his Father. This is where you and I have got to go. That's the invitation of this passage for us. And I don't think the place and the posture of prayer in this passage, though it's physical, right? He withdrew a stone's throw from his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. That doesn't mean in some legalistic, crazy fashion that you and I got to go stone's throw from a certain group of people over in a garden called Gethsemane and maybe the one that I named. No, we're not, we're not saying that. You guys are smart enough to know that, right? It's not about a specific physical location, though physicality is important. I can tell you that on my back porch on Friday afternoons or Thursday afternoons when I'm trying to study for a sermon and prayerfully think think my way through that, um, it's not a good place for me to be. Why? Because my kids come home at 3.30. And that's kind of a stone's throw from the kitchen to there, but my kids are loud. And I can be like Jesus and be like, go to the living room and pray that temptation doesn't overtake you. <laughs> but that doesn't work either, because they wind up goofing off, right? Right? And so, and so the place of prayer, there is a physical location to that whereby you are alone and in some peace and quiet and tranquil and can get into the presence of your Father. The posture of prayer is important as well, says Jesus kneeled. Now, some of us here have really bad knees. You're not going to catch us down on our knees in that way. And I don't, I'm not entirely sure that the kneeling down physically is that important. It has more to do with a posture of the heart and a posture of the soul. It's a posture of deeply submitted surrender, right? Deeply submitted surrender. So what it look like for you to withdraw into a place of secluded prayer? A place where you can be secluded away from craziness to pray. What needs to change in your life so that you can be in that posture of surrender and submission? What needs to change? You have to answer those questions. I can't answer those questions for you because all of your stories are different. But those questions are there by way of application so that you can walk out of here and wrestle with it. Please do not take this invitation the Holy Spirit gives you and stick it in your back pocket and pretend like it didn't happen. Because you get held accountable for that. You were given the invitation from Scripture. And your Father in Heaven holds you accountable to that. Does that make sense? Don't, don't take that invitation and burn it up. Don't take that invitation and throw it in the trash. Walk out of here today and ask these questions seriously of you. Why? Why, why do I press this so hard? I, just, I know us as a church family. I know we got visitors here too, but I know us as a church family. This is one of the areas that we struggle in. And it's not that I want to beat the heck out of us either. I just, I just want to spur us on towards love and good works. I really want to push us towards being in the presence of our Father through prayer. So what do you need to do? What needs to change in your life so that you can do this? Point number three is the content and the response of prayer. <coughs> content and the response of prayer. Verse 42 to 43, we see the content of Jesus' prayer. And the Father's response. So the content of his prayer and the, response, or the Father's response to his prayer. And sometimes it's hard, right? Hard to know what to pray. Prayer can be hard. That's where we started. Hard to know what to pray. Even harder sometimes to cope with what God says to us or what his response to our prayer is. It's hard to cope with what his response to our prayer might be. 
I think this portion of our text is vital because we see Jesus' content, the content of his prayer, as well as the Father's response to his prayer. Do you think that God always answered Jesus' prayers? Just ask you. Just think about it for me. You gotta tell me. You think Jesus always answered God always answered Jesus' prayers? <laughs> God always answered Jesus' prayers in the way that he wanted them to be answered? Hmm. Was God always listening? Did God give him what he needed? I think in this passage, like when Jesus prays, he's not just giving lip service to the practice of prayer. He's actually coming to God with some very legitimate and pressing issues. Sometimes we think when we come to God that, wow, this issue isn't really that big. I'm making a bigger deal out of it than it really is. And when Jesus comes to his Father in prayer, he's coming with some legitimate issues. He knows he's going to die horrendously in a few hours. He knows that one of his closest friends, Judas, is already off the freaking reservation, denying him, setting up an opportunity to murder him. He knows that another one of his closest friends, Peter, is going to deny him three times here soon. Everybody else is going to bail and run. He knows that the time of his brutal beating with a whip while he gets stripped naked in front of the entire watching world, he knows that's going to happen to him. He knows he's going to carry his cross down a long road up a mountain of death outside the city. He knows that they're going to nail him to that cross. He knows what's coming. And it's not just that he knows his death. Here, listen, you you got to get this. Every commentator dating back to whenever commentaries started coming out, dating back to the church fathers and the reformers, makes this distinction. It's not just that Jesus is concerned about dying, though that's part of it. In Christ's humanity, one of the things we know about Jesus is that he was a hundred percent percent human and a hundred percent God that may make your brain go Poof, and it's okay you don't have to understand that or have that one wrestled to the ground completely so that you can follow Jesus it's trust in Jesus and his work at the cross you've done that the spirit will show you that as you continue following him but Jesus was a hundred percent both hundred percent not 50 50 not half and half or it's like 50 percent human no no hundred percent both it wasn't just that in his humanity he was concerned about dying and he wanted to preserve his life. Every one of us knows what it's like to want to preserve our lives. My mom died nearly three years ago now, I think, coming up here in a couple weeks. And I remember watching her go through that death. And there's been times since then where I felt that inner sense of dread and horror. Um, agony, anxiety. Hey, Death comes for every person. Someday that, that day is coming for me. Most of us in this room maybe have felt that same dread. I'm, I'm going to die someday. I wonder what that's going to be like. I hope it doesn't happen soon. Every one of us in our humanity wrestles with that as Jesus did. But that was not all that Jesus was wrestling with. Not just a mere preservation of his life. He was going to die. But the fact that a cup was going to get poured out on him. And that cup was a baptism of death, so to speak, for the sins of the entire world. Jesus, when he died on that cross, he was perfect. And all of God's fury and anger and wrath at all of the sin in the entire world from the beginning of time through the end of time was getting leveled at, at Jesus so that you and I could be shielded from that fury and wrath. That's scary. There's not one of us in this room that could, that could take that wrath or fury from God. I mean, you think, of, think of your life for a minute. <clears throat> think of the last 24 hours. Think of the list of things you did that were sinful in the last 24 hours. Think about it. Don't talk about it. Think about it. Got that list in your head. Now the payment just for that 24 hours is God's fury and wrath. That's scary. Isn't that scary? And some people are like, man, Jesus, God's about love. He's not about anger and wrath and fury. No, no, he is actually. And that's why Jesus went to the cross was to pay the penalty 
for our sins so that you and I wouldn't have to. That's called grace and, the, and mercy. He, he withheld, he shielded what was coming our way. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just go to that cross for the last 24-hour list of your wrongdoings. He went for everyone's. That's a horrific thing. This is Jesus in the garden as he prays. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Right? If you are willing, please take it away. Like Jesus knew it had to happen, but does it have to happen now? Could it, could it wait for a little bit? If you're willing, please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, regardless, regardless, not my will, but yours be done. In his humanity, Jesus' will, Jesus' desire, inward desire, right, would be to preserve his life. Not my will, but yours be done. This is a posture of submitted surrender. How did, how did, God, how did God answer the prayer? We know the story, right? If you've read your Bible or if you've heard any preacher preach, you know, Jesus went to the cross and died. And three days later, the tomb was empty. So Jesus, so God says, uh, sorry, not taking the cup away. He didn't give Jesus what he desperately wanted right there in those moments. But what did he give him? And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And if you examine this content of his prayer, you see him approaching God, calling him Father, Daddy, please take this away. Abba, please don't let this happen. Please put it off. God does not answer that prayer. It's one of those powerful places in Scripture where we see both the human and the divine nature of Jesus splashed now onto the pages of our scriptures. We see the Father not answering Jesus' prayer the way He wanted to, and we can relate so well. But we can also rest assured that the Father in heaven did answer the prayer in a way that He knew best, sent an angel to strengthen Him. What does the content of your prayer life look like? What should it look like moving forward? Coming to God as your daddy, as your father? Placing your requests in front of him, but then also asking him to give you the strength to trust in him when things don't go the way you want them to? Asking him to help you to see how he has answered your prayer, maybe not in the way that you wanted him to, but maybe in a way that you needed to. Number four. Number four, what we see is the soul, the soul and the commitment of prayer. Verse 44, we see the condition of Jesus' soul. The condition of Jesus' soul during prayer and his commitment to prayer. Like the content of Jesus' prayer gives us a sneak peek into what was happening in his soul that very moment. But it also helps us understand that even Jesus had to wrestle with the truth that we've been, just been talking about, that that our Father in heaven answers our prayers according not to our will, but to His will. <clears throat> what does that do to your soul as you think about it? Luke tells us that Jesus being in agony prayed more earnestly. When you're in agony and God doesn't answer your prayer, what do you want to do? Stop praying. When you've prayed about something for an awful long time and God doesn't answer your prayer the way you wanted it to do, what are you tempted to do? Stop praying. Gut it out on my own. Make it happen, right? Stop praying. Stop relying on the presence of God, our Father. Not Jesus. Jesus being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And the condition of Jesus' soul during this prayer in, the, in what I like to call the Garden of Agony man, reveals Jesus' commitment to prayer. And it's unlike anything I've ever seen in Scripture, anything I've ever seen anywhere. Jesus' commitment to prayer, just to continue praying in the midst of that hardship. This is why I say prayer is hard. Look at it that way. Prayer isn't just hard because it's hard to continue doing, but it's hard because it's hard to commit to doing. Right? Some of you are wrestling with the question I just asked. Go back and listen to it. <laughs> What's the condition of your soul in these moments in regards to prayer? What does your commitment to prayer look like even in the most difficult of times? 
Number five, final point. I want to look at the enemy and encouragement of prayer. The enemy and encouragement of prayer. And Luke tells us that when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They were sad, sleeping. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He says it twice. Just think about Jesus in this that I really love. Jesus has no problem confronting the enemy of prayer in our lives while at the same time giving continual encouragement to continue praying. He confronts it and continues to encourage the enemy and the encouragement to pray. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I don't know that if that I would have walked this out the way that Jesus did. It would have been really hard. I mean, he's already been repeating himself all throughout the entire Gospel of Luke, and his disciples just aren't getting it. You would think that they would start to get a passing grade the longer they walked with Jesus. But what actually happened? <laughs> Their growth curve was epic failure after epic failure after more epic failure. Three stinking years of walking with these guys, Right? And instead of being able to say, okay, okay, I see, I see little baby steps where you're actually growing a little bit. Um, it actually went like this for Jesus in his ministry. Just, I mean, just think about that in terms of measuring your faithfulness in ministry, even in marriage or in anything that you do. We're always looking for tangible markers of success. And if we would have measured Jesus' success, I mean, he came, um, he was here for 33 years, and for three of those years, he called 12 dudes to come follow him who kept screwing it up epically, right? <clears throat> and then at some point, after walking with them for three solid years, all of them bailed. They were gone. Showed up Sunday morning for church, they weren't there. Gospel community didn't show up, stayed home to watch TV. Going out with a girlfriend, whatever it may be, right? They epically failed. Every last one of them at the very end was gone. Jesus hung on that cross by himself. This calling was for him and him alone. You and I didn't help him walk that out. It's a great picture of his grace for you and I. He came back later and then knocked out of the park. But if you want to talk about epic ministry failure... Pastor comes, gathers core team, launches. Three years later, you should be sustainable as a church. Your people should be given enough money to cover a full-time pastor, and you should have enough movement to start planting another church. That's what should be happening, right? I mean, I can look at this in all so many different angles. Jesus wanted enough money there, and definitely wanted enough people there. And to top it all off, they crucified him out in front of everybody else. Epic ministry failure is what that looks like to the onlooking world. But the reality is, we know the end of the story. The end of the story is this is exactly what the Father had purposed to do in Jesus' life and through his life for the life of the church. The enemy of prayer for us is sleepwalking through life and missing that, just like these disciples. That's the enemy. Sleepwalking through life. Jesus says, let's pray against temptation. The temptation to do what? The temptation to fall asleep. That's the temptation he's talking about. Because what do they do? They fall asleep. Instead of praying, instead of hanging on Jesus' every word, they fall asleep. Jesus repeats himself and just keep praying this way. What's the response of your soul as you listen to this? As you see Jesus praying in agony in the middle of the garden, is your soul awakened? Is it awakened to the picture of Christ at the cross? Is your soul awakened to the, the reality that there is an invitation being extended to you to get away from the presence of all things and people that cause your brain to spin and to pull away into prayer, the practice of prayer, and to resist the enemy? Is it encouragement that you're receiving in these moments to get away from everything that in this life can be killing you and killing your soul and get yourself into the presence of your Father where you can be sustained. That's the invitation of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for our time together. 
and thank you for this, this intense focus on what it, what it looks like to, uh, to have a life um, that is given to um, just a robust prayer. And so God, uh, thank you for that. And I pray over the next few moments as we close in worship and close in communion and then move on to feasting together. Pray God that you would continue to um, encourage our hearts and our souls in this. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. 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 So we're going to close in worship. Uh, so just going to invite you guys to stand. <laughs> if somebody's sleeping next to you, if anybody's sleeping next to you, smack them in the back of the head. We're going to close in worship. We'll take communion together as well. And uh, I want to say this about communion. I try to say it every week. Um, communion is for people who have trusted in Christ, who have understood the gospel. You may not believe every doctrine you've heard. You may still have a lot of questions. That's okay. It's actually a good place to be. Um, it's not like you come to Jesus and be like, oh, I said yes to Jesus, now I know it all. Um, now you just enter in a journey where you just keep asking questions and wait for God to answer them. So, so if you've trusted in the gospel, if, you've, if you, you understand that Christ went to the cross for you, he was your perfect sacrifice to cover your sin, and that there's evidence of your life of change and growth, um, and you're, you're continuing to persevere, then, then you're a believer. You don't have to be a member of our church to take communion, but you have to be a believer. Otherwise, you drink judgment upon yourself. And we don't want that. The second thing we don't want is we don't want to create people who just do mindless, boring activities and traditional things just because, oh, everybody else in church was doing it, so I better go do it so I don't look like a dummy. We're all dummies here, number one. We just don't want you to be a phony. Okay? So I'd rather be a dummy than a phony, so don't come forward and take communion if you're not a Christian. Um, it could have happened in these moments. You could, something could have happened in the midst of hearing this message where you were like, man, I heard God speak to me. I'm trusting in Christ. His broken body, his shed blood at the cross. I'm trusting in the fact that the tomb was empty three days later, signifying God's power over Satan's sin and the grave in me. And, uh, and I'm walking, trusting him from this point forward. That could have happened. That's cool. We're just going to leave that between you and the Lord. We want to talk about some of that. We're here to talk with you. Um, there will be two of us near the front to serve the communion elements. You can just come forward and grab them from us and then go back to your seats. And uh, we'll close in communion. So thanks for worshiping with us today. And thanks for letting me preach. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.